Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Listen, you've heard my hashtag, different, better, more. What will you do differently, better, or more of in 2023? Some of you have already committed to healing from grief by working with me and my non-clinical approach to grief recovery and support. But for those of you who want to round out your healing with a clinical approach, there's BetterHelp and their network of over 25,000 licensed therapists. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether that's by text, by chat, phone, or even video. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, with more scheduling flexibility and at a much more affordable price. Use this link to get 10% off your first month. BetterHelp.com forward slash C words. That's better H-E-L-P.com forward slash C words. Listen, grief doesn't have to be grim. That's why when I talk about it on this podcast, it's about dealing with grief and loss in a way that influences the changes you want to make in your life. As you heal, what do you want to do next? Make a professional pivot, end a toxic relationship or friendship. I want you to have the confidence to navigate change. These are real stories from my one-on-one coaching sessions and my inspiring interviews with change makers. I'm Marcia Cork, the change coach, and this is Ooh, Those Effin' C Words. The content and conversations with me on this podcast are for informational and educational purposes only. They're not intended to be a substitute for legal, medical, or clinical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of a licensed or qualified professional. MCs, welcome back to another episode of Ooh, Those F and C Words. I am Marcia Cork, the change coach. Now, when I developed this show, I knew I wanted it to be a space to be inspired by people on the other side of change, but also to give us a glimpse into the lives of people who are navigating that change that comes with loss and with hardship and to do that in real time. So with season two, I was more committed than ever to just kind of bring visibility to grief recovery as the most neglected area of self-care. And within my community, um, within my client base, within my online community on Slack, there are some very brave people who are just willing to do that by publicly sharing portions of their grief recovery sessions. And they've given me permission to record them, um, to record their families with the single goal of normalizing grief recovery and showing how transformative this experience can be, okay? So to protect their privacy, those sessions, this one today, um, they're gonna be audio only. So there'll be no accompanying visuals for Spotify or going on my YouTube channel. And another thing I'm gonna do is I'll occasionally change their names to add an additional layer of privacy. So today, Lakia is willing to share 
So thank you so much for being willing to, to share your experience and go through the activities. All right. So we're going to be working through my grief recovery guidebook, which is given before every four week session. And that's whether it's a one-to-one -one, like I'm doing with Lakia today, or whether it's a group session or a session with a couple or family, everybody goes through this four week process. And I have you complete some of the workbook um, in advance, you know, prior to that first session. And Lakia has done that today. Then we progress through the guidebook week by week. And there's a total of five activities. So today we're going to work through activity one. Um, so before we get into that, though, going through that experience, tell me what it was like, because I know it can feel like a lot. It can be a little bit exhausting. So just tell me what that process was like for you. Well, being that I took your um, survey before and knew the totality that loss can encompass, mm -hmm. it was a lot. And I was like, mm, how do I pick which ones to put on this paper? Yeah. But I thought about the ones that just, I guess, resonate in my mind the most. Um, mm -hmm. And it was hard because, as you know, if you're not healed from it, it it's going to bring a reaction back. Yeah. And there isn't so much um, a, a picking and choosing, but you will find as you go through the exercises that all of the life events that you experience will have a different impact on you, a high impact or a low impact, you know, with that with that event and the extent of it. So I actually, you know, we'll we'll get into, into that a little bit more, but I have you um, just kind of scale it for me. So whether it's a, a positive reaction or a negative reaction What's the intensity? What's the level of impact that that event had on you? So I'll have you walk through all of them um, in just a few minutes. Now, refresh my memory. You've worked with a therapist before. Are you doing therapy simultaneously or you've, you've done it in the past? I have done therapy in the past. Okay. And having gone through therapy um, and now doing this type of grief recovery method, what's the difference? What can you tell me? Um, is a key difference between this approach and a more traditional clinical approach? Really, this is more delving into the past, I feel. Okay. Um, I felt like when I dealt with a clinical approach, it's like we discussed the past, but it's like you can't change nothing about the past, which you still can't change it. Mm -hmm. But I do feel it needs to be acknowledged and heard. Mm. And do you feel like it's more action-based? Yes, this one is definitely more action based because I didn't have like any activities or any um yeah. any any kind of matching the feelings. So a lot of time in my previous therapy, I would depend on her to tell me what I was feeling or what I was mm -hmm. saying. Not necessarily mm -hmm. depending on but like if I was on like I think one session I remember distinctly, I kept saying okay. And she was like, Stop saying okay because you're blocking what I'm trying to tell you. So it was like I was reading off of her based on how I'm feeling. But when I can write or there's an activity associated, I can dig within myself for those yeah. feelings and what it is. Exactly. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it helps you feel like you are actually taking control of your healing. Um, things have to resurface. Yeah. And then you have to work with work through them in real time. Yes. Okay. So let's get to that first activity then. 
Um, and I want to do it alongside the Holmes Rahe stress inventory index. You said you did use some of them. When you did the exercises. Yeah. Okay. So, Lakia, why don't we start there? Tell me some of the events you experienced. Um, and actually, tell me your total, because then I can explain to them what that total means. My total was 535. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me walk through what those scores mean. OK, so with these scores, if you're at 150 points or less, you're less likely to experience a major health breakdown. All right. That's at 150 points or less. But when you get to 150 to, to 300 points, now you're at about a 50 percent chance of experiencing some type of health breakdown in the next two years. Then at 300 points or more, that goes up to an 80% chance of a health breakdown in the next two years. All right. So that's according to that holmes Rahe statistical uh, prediction model. And Lakia, you said you were at what? 535. 535. Yeah. And it can happen. And I'm going to read some of these life events because um, you know, for example, death of a spouse or death of a, a loved one very close to you has a value of about 100 points. So being fired from work, I think that's at around 50 points. Um, a major change in someone else's health or behavior and you having to, to support something like that, uh, that's at 44 points. So you can see how quickly these points can add up, right? So let me explain to people what activity one is. This one has you look at a number of life events over the course of your life, actually. How far did you go back, Lakia? Uh, as far as I can remember. Okay, good. So I have you recall some of your greatest losses, um, you know, disappointments, and how they've shaped who you become. And that is the T in my framework because... For those of you who listen regularly, you're also aware of my It's Me approach. And the T is always about the truth and the trauma. So that's where I start with my grief approach as well. So that's what I'm going to have Lakia walk through now. I didn't print out the paper. I just wrote it down. So that's fine. Um, I went back as far as I can remember. I do have, I do acknowledge and realize I have trauma blocks because my sister and brother remember things that I don't remember. Mm, okay. That I blocked it out as self-protection. Yeah. One of the first things I can remember that I wrote down um, is my parents were having a fight. And during this fight, one of them threw one of those heavy glass ashtrays. And I just happened to be in the middle and it like went past my face in that moment. And I'm not saying that fights weren't typical, but that's like the one that comes to mind when I think about it. Um, I think I did. I don't think I cried about it because I wasn't actually hurt. I think I just ignored it because, like I say, fights were typical between the two of them. So the backstory is they both met kind of in the street doing the same things, but my mother got saved and had a different lifestyle, but still was love him. And of course, you know, had her children with him. So it was always him being drug and alcohol dependent 
in the house, out the house, in the house, out the house, in the house, out the house. So a lot of the fights re, re, revolved around that. So that particular incident, yeah, I don't remember like feeling anything but shock and kind of just like, I guess, pushing it wherever I pushed everything else. The next one I remember, um, so I have a, quite a few in a row in the kitchen. Um, I didn't like to cook. And for the longest time, I didn't know why, but I had a lot of trauma associated in the kitchen. But the next one I could remember, I don't remember what I did, but my mother was disciplining me um, with a belt. And just as children do, I went to duck and the belt hit me across my face and cut my face open. So it was like a gash on my face. And of course I cried. Um, but again, it was just something like, cause she was a heavy disciplinarian. So it was like what you had to expect, kind of like internalize. I did something wrong, just don't do it again or just don't get caught. So I won't get spanked no more. Um, one of the next ones I wrote is I remember us cooking together making a pie or something in the oven and I was excited for it to come out and didn't use an oven mitt and I dropped it and she disciplined me because of that Now, I'm going to jump in occasionally and explain what's happening throughout this episode. So this part right here, this is uncomfortable to listen to, and it's going to happen throughout her activity. Lakia is getting very emotional right now, and most of you are waiting for me to comfort her, right? But interrupting actually disturbs the process. It's important that a person fully relive the event so they can accurately gauge their feelings in response to that event. What typically happens when a person opens up and starts to, you know, get emotional and show vulnerability, the listener wants to comfort them, right? So they'll go in for a hug and, you know, we'll pat them on the back and say things like, that's okay. They want to help stop their pain. And I guess it does, you know, for the moment, but think about it. It also stops the griever from continuing to express themselves. They usually stop talking and then they'll quickly try to get themselves together. So with this approach, with my grief method and the way that I was trained, you listen as emotional support. And that allows the griever to just speak and react freely without rushing the experience. And they can relive the full range of emotions in response to that life event. Again, a lot of these, I only remember the actions, not necessarily what I felt. Because I think growing up, like, I felt my feelings weren't acknowledged, at least by my mom. So that's probably why they're still coming out now. It was kind of like, once again, you did something wrong. You deserve to get punished for it, so just accept the punishment. Um, 
one of the next ones I remember is um, the loss. Like I skipped ahead, ahead. <laughs> I just did it as they came to my mind. Um, when I got pregnant with my first child and being with her father and then realizing he wasn't going to change. And I had to make that decision to best take care of me and her. But I decided to like break up with him before she was born or like right after she was born. And then it was hard by myself. Like, because he immediately withdrew. And that loss at that point was so, I get, I'm assuming it was postpartum depression associated with it. Like it was so hard in that moment that I took like a lot of pills because I'm like, I don't know why I made this decision. This decision was dumb. I should have just stayed with him and tolerated it. Like, I don't know what to do with this baby. Like I was 22, 23 years old. I had my daughter when I was 23, but yeah, that was a really hard one because I had to go through like psych watch 24 hours to make sure I was okay, get my stomach pumped. I had to go through like a whole lot and then I still had to come home and raise a child. So again, feelings are feelings, but you can't live in them. And I think that's like what I was taught from my mom because my mom is very, very, very emotional. So like in all of her emotion, all of her anger, all of her everything, there was no room for anybody else's stuff. Like you just had to kind of bury it, deal with it the best way that you could and move on from it. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. While I was still pregnant with the daughter, um, very much religious um, indoctrination. I was raised in a church, but I kind of had a problem or kind of withdraw from it now. Not that I still don't believe in God, but it was always only thing I knew of God was punishment. And I remember being pregnant with the daughter, so I'm backing up one. Um, and I, again, I don't remember what exactly happened, but I know outside of the church where people were congregating when church was over, me and my mother were arguing and in a fight. And she chose to disclose something very personal and very loudly and embarrassed me, like in front of everybody. Everybody, everybody that was standing outside heard and like just basically put people in my business and not only was that bad enough, like once we got in the car, my sister was driving, my mother was behind me. She just kept on, like she wouldn't let it go. She just kept on with the argument, kept on with the argument. I wasn't trying to say nothing, but it got to the point where she was just getting on my nerve and I called her a name. But because I called her a name, that was the disrespectful part. And she started hitting me while I was pregnant with my child, just flailing at me. Um, she hit me in my face, she hit me in my stomach. Like, yeah, but I was a disrespectful one because I was not respecting my mother because I called my mother out of her name. My sister was all flustered. She had to pull the car over, scream, like basically jump on top of my mother to stop her from hitting me. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad.
And now when I just remember feeling angry, because like I said, it was, it was, it was like, what am I always doing so wrong that I deserve to not only get embarrassed, but once I'm defending myself against you, then it's still a problem. But again, the relationship between me and her, I was always kind of made out to be like the, the wayward child. And that, that, that reason comes later <laughs> in the story. But yeah, the, the unruly child, and I really wasn't. Like, I didn't go to jail, didn't do drugs, didn't do alcohol. I went to school, finished school, graduated, went to college, got a job. Like, I didn't do any wild child type of behavior. So this angst that was always between us, I really didn't understand where it came from till later in life. Um, skip ahead to having a baby my daughter's father and going through a suicide attempt um after that i skipped much further ahead uh, to me and my late husband were dating I'm trying to think if we were dating or if we were married I don't know if we were dating or married, but I learned violence. And so he said something. I didn't like what he said. And I threw a shoe at him. So reminisce to what I went through as a child. So I'm seeing people throw objects, whatever. I threw a shoe at him in his direction. And I didn't realize I had such good aim and it hit him square in his face and after that, he promptly got up and started choking me. And that was like a big thing because it was like, okay, what is happening in this relationship? Because this should not be happening. Like this, I should not be my parents. This should not be a repeat. I'm trying to break this cycle. Um, Again, no tears. I was just kind of like, okay, are we going to stop this from happening and go forward? It was a long break or pause that we took to decide whether we want to still be together. In hindsight, I think probably I should have went ahead and separated, but I think I wanted to be acknowledged and wanted so bad that I was willing to overlook what I saw was like, oh, this is just one incident. This is just one time. I started it, blah, 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 blah. I tend to do that too. Um, and I'm assuming it's in response to trauma and loss. I justify a lot of things. Like I somehow take the responsibility away from the person who it belongs to and make it my responsibility or make it something that I did that caused it. <sighs> Um, the devastating event that I had written down is um, 
the very first child my husband and I conceived, we weren't pregnant. I mean, we weren't married. Um, but that's why we decided to get married because I was pregnant. And I don't think he was ready, but we were yelling and arguing so much, I miscarried that baby. So that was hard to go through because, and I did cry, I did mourn that child because it's like, why can't my body hold the baby? And I blamed him some because I felt like he was nitpicking a lot of things because he wasn't ready. But like immediately after we had got pregnant again, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, this was after we were married. We got pregnant. So this, the first baby was before we got married. We went ahead and got married. After we got married, we got pregnant again, almost immediately after. And going to that sonogram, which was back then done at 20 weeks, there was a big black mass in the middle of the baby's belly. And the uh, person immediately left the room and went and got the doctor. And when the doctor came in, they said, the baby is something. We don't know what this mass is. You should go ahead and abort it because it's more than likely not going to survive outside of you. So that was really hard because I was with my husband. I wanted to have a baby. We miscarried the first baby. And it's like, now we made it to 20 weeks. We had named her, her name was Paige. And now we got here trying to find out if it was a girl or boy. And she was a little girl, but it's like, now they're like, okay, but I'm kind of tenacious and I don't really give up. I self, he had insurance at that point. That was, um, it could be anything we wanted it to be, HMO, PPO, POS. So I referred us to John Hopkins. They got a stamp placed. Um, but I went into labor with Paige at 28 weeks. And she didn't make it. What I remember most about that event is when I went into labor, they kept asking me questions like I was in a concussion. Like, what was my name? Where did I live? What was the month? And I was like, I'm having a baby. I didn't hit my head. Um, I don't know what the reason for that was, but she was born at 28 weeks. She weighed like three pounds and something ounces. She had her eyes open at first and she cried. But they told us when a child, so her problem was she had no urethra to take the urine out of her body. And apparently when a child is in utero, that's how they build up their lungs. They drink their amniotic fluid and pee it back out. So when Paige couldn't do that, her lungs didn't develop. And they had her like on three different breathing machines and finally, they was like, if you don't take her off the breathing machines, she's going to have a heart attack because she cannot sustain it on her own. So we made the decision to go ahead and stop the machines and let her die peacefully instead of having like a sudden pain. But that was really hard. That was the first time 
that I saw my husband cry about anything. And yeah, it was, it's, you don't expect to not have your children. Like you don't expect to bury your children. And so this is like the second baby we tried to conceive together and she didn't make it. It was like a lot of grief in that situation. Like he blamed me. I kind of like really didn't blame him, blame myself, but we didn't grieve her. We didn't grieve her because we constantly heard, oh, you're young, just have more, you know, just have another one. Just go ahead and try again. So us listening to everybody, that's what we did. And got pregnant with my teenager, Giselle. The loss I wrote in that situation, um, I don't remember how many months pregnant I was. But again, me and my husband moved out. We had our own place, our own apartment, and we had made it past, I think I was past the 28-week mark. She was fine. All the checkups was going good. But whatever reason, we got into an argument, and I tried to get into the room. And he didn't want me in the room. Well, he was trying to do something behind the door. So when I pushed the door open, it kind of flung back and hit his foot. And again, him reacting the way that he did, he um, put my head through a wall when I was pregnant with my daughter, Giselle. So I didn't even call the police. I think I just screamed so loud the neighbors called the police, but... I didn't press charges. Again, like these things happen to me and they kind of seem surreal. Um, the work that I did previously in therapy, I had to learn that like I didn't deserve any of this. But I guess at that point, I kind of felt like in some way, somehow that I did. Like I said, always making a justification for it that it was my fault if I did X, Y, and Z different, if I prayed harder, if I acted different, I was better, right, blah, 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 like all this different stuff to make him change his behavior. But I wrote that one down because I think that's the point in our relationship that I realized I should have probably left before we got married and not been with him because in some way, form, or fashion, it was going to continue. And it was going to be problematic because he didn't even take care or concern that being that we just previously lost two children through no fault of our own, that I was pregnant. Like that was the furthest thing through his from his mind. Um... it was a lot of incidents in between there, a lot. But I didn't write all of those down because they're all kind of similar in the same vein. Um, 
And I guess the pattern in all of this is not really dealing with any of it. Um, we tried a lot of counseling. What would happen is he would go for a while and then make some type of excuse as to why. One time I remember we were paying $10 and that was too expensive weekly. It was too expensive for us to go to, but it was always some excuse um, as to why we couldn't finish counseling. So back then when I did intensive therapy, like a lot of them therapy sessions, I had to, I was in by myself just doing it for me and trying to get me to a point of healing and because you can't drag somebody with you where they don't want to be. Um, but the next one I wrote down was we separated and I lost my grandmother all in the same year. So I was like in therapy. We had got a house. Um, but it was contention over the house because it's not the house that he picked. It was a program that I found out about through my mom. And we had to wait until it was ready. But it was like an MPDU program where we were paying less for it. Um, going into the house, like I said, he had a lot of resentment, I think. But going into therapy, I stayed in therapy three years by myself and it just got to a point where I was just ready to stop justifying his bad behavior, stop justifying the abuse, stop justifying everything that would happen and went and separated. And I think not even, I don't know if my grandmother happened before. No, I think my grandmother was the linchpin because my grandmother, as I mentioned before, would like always take us in when we had to go back or the funding or finances got too bad from, you know, dealing with my dad because he may have blown all the money on drugs or whatever the case may be. So, and I skipped over, like I say, some of this runs together, it's convoluted and I, I apologize to you and your listeners for that. Um, but I fight with my mom at 16. I moved in with my grandmother. And from that point, I didn't leave her house until I got married. So when she, she was like my mother to me, in my mind, she is, she was my mother because she gave me the love, the care, the foundational stuff that I needed for me to even be here at 45 today. But she died in May. Um, I didn't even need to write that down because that plays so much in my head. We had had a meeting at work about not accepting phone calls on our cell phone because they look unprofessional. I worked in a daycare and we didn't want to be on the phone or looking at the phone when the parents walked in because we had a duty of care and she called on the cell phones. I ignored the first call and she immediately called back and I'm like, this is not normal. Like she would normally just leave a voicemail. So I went in the closet and all I remember her saying is, Kiki, my heart, my heart. And so I'm racing to my director's office to get another phone because I can't hang up on her because I want to like know what's going on. But I get to like a landline phone and 
calling 911 and I hear my grandmother falling through. And that was the last thing I heard of her. And of course, I'm upset, I'm, I'm frantic, but I, what I remember most is I think at that time, my husband worked from like four to one. So when I went home to try to figure out like what happened, where the ambulance took her, like get down to her house because we were in Gaithersburg and I was trying to get to Hyattsville. He was irritated at that. And I didn't, I didn't understand how he as my husband could take that attitude and that approach when I just told him what had happened. Like she was on the phone and I heard her drop and I had to send an ambulance to her house. But we get down there. I didn't know what hospital she would, they had took her to because I wasn't there. I didn't stay on the phone with 911 because I was trying to get there. And like I said, that call was on a landline. So I finally found a hospital that she was in and they put me in and already knew. Like in my subconscious, I knew like if they're not taking me to her, it's a problem. And they came in the room and said that she was gone. I just remember like screaming and screaming and screaming. And I remember the people also like telling me that I needed to calm down unless they were going to get the authorities. So again, I thought that that was weird. Like, you never know the level of love between two people. And I believe grief is correlated with the love that you felt for that person. And so to have them try to box in what I was feeling in that moment, because it was disturbing to them, like, was also very hard. But after that initial moment, I basically was just logistical, like carried out what I knew she wanted, what she wrote down, what she had set forth in her pre-need with the funeral home, getting all the arrangements, everything. Like, I didn't really cry after that point. It wasn't until like years later that I let myself start feeling what I felt. And then I separated from him. I think she died May. I separated from my husband in the fall. And again, I didn't want to feel anything. I went out to party. I was in the clubs. I was going to get my groove back. Yeah, I didn't want to deal with anything. Um, after my grandmother died, I had to go in probate against my mother. So all of that was just too much. I disassociated. I wasn't going to, like, it, <laughs> it might have been a running bet if you could make me cry because, yeah. So it may have seemed weird to everybody else, but I know now that was just my way of dealing with it because it was a lot and I didn't want a break. I still had the girls that I was caring for. It was only um, my oldest, my two oldest at that time. And yeah, it was a lot happening in that 
one small little six month time frame and I didn't yeah I didn't deal with it at all but of course he tried to come back and we attempted to reconcile and we took a grief class at the church I was attending and we had learned at that point that we never really grieved our baby that we lost together and I remember somebody saying something that stuck with me all these years is like not dealing with grief or any feelings is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater because you can hold it there, but the longer you hold it, the harder it is for it to stay there. Like it's going to pop up and hit you in the face. It's going to, it's going to resurface. It's going to come out. And so it's kind of best to like try to deal with it and try to get the feelings out about it in a healthy way before it becomes like that beach ball situation. Okay, I want to jump in here. As you can see, Lakia is doing a great job with this exercise. At this point, she's about three quarters of the way through the life events um, as she remembers them. Of course, I want you to continue to listen to the full episode, but I also want to just jump in and share some helpful takeaways because these are the sorts of things that she and I would talk through after the exercise. But to break up the conversation, I want to share them here. So did you notice that Lakia intellectualizes death and life events? She doesn't really allow herself to get emotional. So initially, early in her life, she was having normal reactions to events, you know, crying, getting emotional, being emotionally expressive. But then she starts to tell herself that she can't stew in her feelings. And she learns to just go about the business of, you know, day to day life and adulthood, but then also in childhood, just to do what she can to either avoid conflict, to avoid um, these types of situations, to not cry. So I love that she realizes and, and shares um, the contrast in the way that she reacts to events in these experiences. I want to also apologize for the background noise. She and I have talked about it. She lives on a very, a very busy thoroughfare. So um, it's hard to avoid. But look, this is real life, right? And these are the kinds of sounds that you will experience doing virtual calls. And none of us is unfamiliar with, you know, the nuances of virtual calls. So please just bear with us and just follow the hard work that Lakia is doing here. Chronologically, going through these events would be more helpful. You probably noticed that she jumps around a bit. Um, she wrote them down in chronological order, but I think, you know, just in telling them, she's just kind of sharing them as, the, as they come to mind, as one event makes her think about another. So I am going to share with her that when she does these exercises with her kids, you know, um, the way that my exercise is designed is to do it as a family as well. And so the parents will support their kids through these life events and through losses. And as I've mentioned before, she and her kids have lost both her husband and her father-in-law, her husband's father, I believe, um, just in the past seven months. So she's going to be coaching them through an exercise that I have for families. And so what I tell her about that exercise is to not expect the kids to have their memories in chronological order. They're probably all just going to toss out in the different memories um, they have with their dad and with their granddad. 
but if she can to just kind of document them in order because what that does is it helps you identify some coping mechanisms or some habits or behaviors that you may have picked up from previous traumas or events so much like she learned very early in her childhood um, not to cry and not to stew in her feelings these are the kinds of things that you pick up over the years from different experiences so that's why it's helpful to do them in order so that you can identify habits and behaviors that you pick up along the way now let's pick up where we left off with that perfect metaphor Lakia used about the beach ball as grief that you can try to push it down and suppress it underwater, but it will resurface. Ultimately, you have to learn to float with it. Here in Hagerstown, when I moved up here, that was part of us reconciling together. I was in Gaithersburg. He accepted a job up here. Um, and I moved back with him. And we were going to try to reconcile, but I don't think that that was right to do because we never really got like counseling or therapy. Once again, it's like, oh, we're just going to do this on our own. <laughs> we don't have any tools to manage any feelings, anything that ever happened in the first place, anything that happened during the separation. We're just going to wing it. And it was hard. It was hard because it was like, the trust was fractured. Like all the same issues that were before the separation could just kind of got magnified being back together. <laughs> Cause it was like, well, what were you doing? And what were you doing during the separation? But what I wrote down as a loss, um, I remember, I think we had had some more kids. I don't know, we had both boys. I think we at least had our son, our oldest son and whatever we were arguing about. Um, I got mad at him. So I was like, well, just leave. We can separate again. And I do remember like starting to take his stuff out of the closet. So I guess he got triggered by that. Was like, well, you're not making me leave again. You're not forcing me out of my house. And he started choking me out and I blacked out. Like I was literally... I couldn't see anything. I couldn't feel like, to me, that was the end. But I had something in my hand. I think it was some tweezers. And I started, like, flailing at him to get him off of me. Long story short, when the police came, because he had the injury that was visible, I got arrested. And I was so, I wrote that down because I didn't understand. Like he, like, in my mind, I was like, was I supposed to let him kill me before I got help? Like, I didn't understand. So again, that felt to me like being powerless, not being able to do anything. Um, people really not understanding me as a victim. Like I learned in the time that I've been here, like it's kind of indicative of where I live at. Um, but yeah, that I wrote that one down because that was a big one. Like never in my life would I have thought I'd be sitting in somebody's jail over defending myself. Like really the arguments and stuff kind of, the physicalness 
tailed off between us because he became sick or like his sickness got magnified. Like when I married him, he had atrial fibrillation, um, high blood pressure. And then at some point he developed diabetes. So they were just like a, a cocktail for having a stroke at any point. And he had his first stroke in 2018. So that was kind of devastating because it was like, what's happening? What's going on? Because it's like, even though he had been sick and he had to get his heart back in rhythm a couple times, like those things were like in and out procedures. But like when something unexpected happens, like a stroke, like you don't know what to deal with it. Like it's not a preparedness manual for, oh, these are the things that you do and how to handle it. So I wrote that down because it really changed like the dynamic and everything going on because it's like, I'm going through it with this person and I do love this person, but to care for a person that's very abusive and mean to you in any other circumstances is like very crazy. And like it sends your mind kind of crazy places. I kind of felt like a lot of times me and my friend laugh about this. It's not funny though, because it's true. Like I was really living the story of Diary of a Mad Black Woman because like my duty to care for him as a wife was like there and that's what people were judging. And, but it's like, I had every right to say no. I had every right to walk away. I had every right to put my knees and stuff first, but I didn't do that. Of course, typically, because I never did. <laughs> um, after that, I would say probably we in the separation. It was a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth, but he had um, DBT in December of 2021, which is deep vein thrombosis. He got a clot in his leg from not taking his medicine. But I don't, I think we were separated at that point. And so again, it's like, he has nowhere to go. He needs somewhere to go. He needs someone to assist in his care. And I have to be the one responsible for all these things. But it is hard because what about me? What about the issues? What about the reason that you weren't here in the first place? Like, it's kind of hard to overlook all of those things and just be like, like unconditional love only happens between parents and children, I think. Like, it's hard to kind of love somebody unconditionally when they hurt you so badly. And then... Once that was over, he left again, was doing whatever. And um, that's the last one I have here. Um, he was with the kids. My oldest has been out the house for a long time in college, now in grad school. And the uh, second oldest was in a program um, at a college for the summer, five weeks during the summer. So he had the four younger kids apparently had ran out of his medication $10 again so a running theme of $10 being not affordable 
but ran out of his medication and didn't ask anyone for $10. So kind of floated it till that Saturday. And it's my understanding because like I said, I wasn't there. He's with the other kids that he picked up the medication, um, but still didn't take it. Had the medication, didn't take it. Went to visit, I think his father who had been sick and came back home and started having a stroke. At that time, nobody knew what it was exactly that he was going through. But as my son described it, like sweating, um, shaking. Then he asked for his medication as he's going through the stroke. And he laid down and told my son he was going to rest for a little bit and kind of went, um, I don't know the right word for it. Kind of like uh, comatose, I guess. Like at a point he was still responsible. He could understand what was going on outside of his body, but he couldn't respond. So he was kind of like trapped in his body. And again, rushed him to the hospital. I, I was in Frederick, came from Frederick, went to the hospital, but seeing him laid out like that, like I just dropped to the floor. As much as we went through, I think I kind of built the image in my mind that he was everything I wanted him to be, if that makes sense. Like I dealt with the reality, but in my mind, I live in fantasy. And to see or have my fantasy of him shattered by looking at him in that bed like that. And all the tubes, I just dropped to the floor. But again, like, I'm very typical of like, once I feel something, I kind of like try to process it quickly and just get to logistics part of it. I, to this day, I think like I'm sad, but I'm still angry. I'm angry that the medicine only cost $10 and he didn't ask for $10. I'm angry that he left me by myself to raise the kids. I'm angry over the decisions that he made. Um, he didn't have life insurance the whole time. He told me, I have life insurance, I have life insurance, I have life insurance, you'll be fine. This man had accidental death insurance, but that was so him and his personality to think that he would die of an accident at work before he died from any of the three or four health conditions that he actually had. He actually lived with every day that he actually suffered from. He stayed in the hospital for a week. That was hard. Because when people are laid up and it's that time, like, I don't know.
I don't know if it's better for somebody to go suddenly or the process to be drawn out because the way that his family acted like we were separated. Like I still, we never got a divorce. I was still legally his wife. We hadn't even been separated that long, but his family acted very much like I didn't have a right or I didn't have a place. But my story was like, he still sleeps in the house at nighttime. <laughs> you know, if because if he was with the kids and they were out late or whatever, I wouldn't make him go back down the road. I'm like, you can stay here. You know, we were husband and wife. So that was hard dealing with that and his family that they felt they had more rights and personhood to him than me. I had one of his cousins call and demand that I put one of them on the um, the list at the hospital so they could know what was going on and know every chart and every decision and I'm like my it was a lot of anger to them too because I'm like well where have y'all been since 2018 when y'all had when he had his first stroke this is not a new pattern of behavior from for him. And if you cared that much, you would have been involved with him trying to keep him healthy the same way I have been struggling. Um, I know the man thought I was crazy in the hospital. I bust out laughing because he's telling me or asking me about medicine and how many pills and did I count? And I'm like, sir, you're talking about a grown man. I have five children. I don't keep track of how many pills is in his pill box and what he's taking and when he's taking it. And like, I had given up on that a long time ago. Like, I couldn't be his mother, you know? And I think one of the last conversations that we had that was a real deep conversation, I told him, I said, I think we were just a lot codependent. I was broken girl, you were broken boy, and we propped each other up. But I cannot be your mother and you can't be my father. Like we can't be that in that position for each other. And I think that's what we're looking for. He lost his mom at 11. And I believe psychologically, he dealt with that anguish and that mental pain of not getting any counseling or therapy for that and that carried with him onto his physical health um looking at some of the things that his phone it's almost like he was ready when he wanted to be out of pain um reading what he wrote that deep vein thrombrosis not only left pain in that leg that he had get cut open but he had started experiencing some of the same pains in the other leg um and he had to be on his feet like all the time at his, for his work. But yeah, I'm still in that one. <laughs> so it's not a, what did I do to get over it? That's still a day by day thing. Hmm. What a perfect way to close out this episode and this session. I'm still in that one. That is just an astute statement because some events don't have a definitive 
ending, right? Some of them we are still living and reliving. There'll be more moments and events, you know, long after her husband's death, but now at least she'll have a guide and a toolkit for navigating them. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna hear Lakia talk about any guilt or regrets that she has with these events. Um, and we're also gonna talk about what she can do to feel a sense of completion or at least a sense of release. That's the word that I like to use, some sense of release, having re-explored the events over her lifetime but with these new impressions. And I'll show her how to apply the work she's done to future events, um, future life events and hardship. My sincere thanks to Lakia again for her transparency. In a future session, she'll be joined by her kids. She's gonna lead her kids through a grief recovery exercise. My sessions can be conducted as one-to-one. -one. They can be conducted as a group or as a family. Um, and also with couples. But that session with her kids will be a little different because that won't be a session that I guide. Lakia is actually going to use my activity book and my exercises to support her kids through dealing with those losses of their father and their grandfather, again, just seven months apart. And we're gonna listen in. So that's going to be a really empowering session if you're someone who has to support a child through grief. So you'll get to see more of these activities in action. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Those FNC Words is an independently produced podcast produced and edited by yours truly, Marcia Cork, and made possible with support from listeners like you. To support the podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash those FNC Words forward slash support or click the link in the show description. If you've made a commitment to self-care in 2023, join my free Hashtag different, better, more challenge on Slack. Come for the accountability, stay for the community. Download the Slack app now and click the link in the show description to join.